Good morning and welcome again to High Life. It's good to have you with us on uh, this uh, bright Sunday morning. Um, you're, you're very welcome. You know, this is the third instalment of our, our, our series on the building of the model nation. You know, the Lord is leading us on a journey of uh, exploration of some really critical elements of building the model nation. For those of you that may be new to, to High Life or you're listening uh, to, to this series uh, for the first time today, the Lord began to speak to us about this last year when, when we were uh, examining uh, the distinction of government. And this was, you know, us looking at really the purpose for which we were created and the importance of our identity in him uh, in, in, in executing and laying hold of, of, of that which he has mandated us. Um, and, you know, if you want to look, go back and, and, and listen to some of these messages, uh, you, can, you can do so on our, on our YouTube channel, High Life World. Um, so we're revisiting this today by the leading of the Lord, and it comes at a time where, you know, it's clearer than ever that the nations of the earth are, are really desperate um, for, for direction, for leadership, for, for higher wisdom, and, 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 you know, for discipleship. You know, nations large and small, rich and poor, are going through, across the globe, are going through um, a significant amount of, of disruption and dislocation that is really just crying out for, uh, you know, leadership and, and guidance uh, and wisdom uh, from, a higher, from a higher level. And the Lord has been clear in both the old covenant and the new that he desires to raise a people that will disciple the nations of the earth. Excuse me. In Daniel 2... Um, 44, and th these are some scriptures that we've looked at during the course of, of this uh, exploration. Uh, Daniel 2.44 in the New Living says, During the reigns of those kings, so this is after he has taken um, Nebuchadnezzar through the meaning of his dream and, and you know walked him through the kingdoms that will exist on the earth. And we're now sort of getting to the, the end of... of, of um, you know, the era, the, the time, the season uh, uh, in question. And he says, during the reigns of those kings, i.e. those kings that will come in, in the latter days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 um, says this is a vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. Sorry, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, for he will teach us his ways and, he will, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. Um, in Matthew 28, uh, voice, verses 18 to 20, again in the New Living, you know, Jesus is getting ready to exit the earth and he says to his disciples, it reads, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples, these new disciples being the nations, to obey all the commands I have given you. 
be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, it's so incredible that for many of us, especially those of us that have been uh, in the Lord a long time, you know, when we first came to know the Lord, we, we, we really heard that those verses as basically go and evangelize each one, each one, reach one, and, and, and tell people about the Lord and get them to make personal decisions for the Lord. And that's a good thing, but it's not the full picture. You know, this scripture is very clear. Um, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples, i.e. these nations, to obey all the commands. So what it takes to disciple a nation is clearly different from what it takes to, to, to lead an individual um, to a personal decision for Christ and, and disciple an individual. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 in the message says, and if you've been following us for a while, then you will know this scripture by heart. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all and, and has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. So as we've been exploring this, we've been looking at the importance of seed and the way that this applies to a nation. And we looked at the characteristics of a leader. We talked about Abraham, um, you know, being the father of Israel and how the Lord, you know, worked with and fashioned uh, Abraham before he began to, to seed into this nation. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that the characteristics of the leader has a critical impact on the character and expression of the nation and, the, on, and that the nation takes on as it, as it, as it developed, as it developed, sorry. And last week, you know, we, we looked at the spirit of orphanhood and the impact that this had in the life of Saul and in turn uh, on the nation of Israel. You know, Saul was Israel's first king. Um, you know, the Lord had not in, intended, it wasn't his, his design for them to have an earthly king, but since they wanted one, he, he gave them one. Um, and, you know, we sort of walked through, you know, where Saul was sort of coming from and, and how he responded to God um, and, and, and how he responded to those around him and how that impacted the nation. We looked at Saul's motives. Um, we looked at how his motives impacted the handling of his, his daughter, um, you know, how he dishonored her, really, by giving her to David um, as bait, really, not as a wife. He didn't waste time you know, giving her to a, another man. I mean, if we think about that, you know, in, in the natural sense, for the daughter of a king, of the king, you know, in a nation, she is, you know, the prize for, for any man, really. Uh, any, any, I don't know that anyone would aspire higher than the, the, the daughter of, of the king. But, you know, Saul gives her, uh, doesn't treat her with that honor, um, and gives her really as bait. And then, you know, when his objectives and his motives with, with 
David do not turn out how he planned. He, he simply gives her to somebody else. You know, we talked about uh, Jonathan, Saul's heir, and how, you know, Saul, you know, threatens Jonathan's life and, and demands that he chooses to either follow what the Lord is doing or follow, uh, follow him, follow his natural father. Um, and he sort of transmits the idea that Jonathan must grasp at uh, his future. You know, he tells him that as long as David is alive, that his throne will never be established, even though the Lord has long told him that, you know, that, that the kingdom has been taken from him. Um, you know, he ultimately leads Jonathan to, to death outside the purposes of God. You know, he sowed seeds of insecurity and dishonor in the army. He manipulates them and encourages them to fight for material gain uh, and favor in the eyes of man as opposed, to, um, as opposed to fighting for the purposes of God. You know, the king of, of, of the nation of Israel ought to be advancing and pursuing the purposes of God and the army ought to be following him as he does that. But Saul turns their gaze away from the Lord and, and onto him and what he desires, uh, you know, which, which um, you know, is, is something that weakens rather than strengthens their position. You know, Saul's reign affects the church. He slaughters uh, the priests, even though he is not responsible for the priesthood. He did not institute the priesthood. The priesthood was instituted by, by uh, the law given to Moses. Um, but yet he slaughters them in an attempt to strengthen his own position before the people and, and rule uh, from a place of fear and intimidation uh, as opposed to honoring the, the, the structure uh, that the Lord has, has set up in the, in the kingdom, in the, in the nation of Israel. He impacts the business world by, by, by drawing um, Dirk the Edomite into his agenda and encouraging, to, encouraging him to seek the favor of man over, over and above what is right. You know, this is where, you know, Doug the Edomite sees David come to uh, Ahimelech and sees Ahimelech, gives him and his men, you know, food and gives him a sword and seeks the Lord for him. And then when under pressure, uh, you know, Saul is raging and he volunteers that information um, in, in, in exchange for favor, really. You know, I mean, can we just imagine... Um, how he would have emerged from that situation. You know, Saul is attempting to manipulate the army. He's telling them that they didn't, you know, they have no pity on him. You know, David is trying to kill him and they, they, they're not, you know, aligning. Um, and the Edomite is moved by that and, and, and responds and, 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 you know, exposes the priests. And then in the end goes on to kill the priests because the army refuses to. Um, so if we take him as like the commercial, the business world, for example, as representative of that, you can imagine how he would have left that situation and those sequence of events. He would have felt a sense of cover. Um, you know, Saul had sown a level of impunity into, into the society, into, into the nation, uh, you know, by, by those acts. And he, he bred insecurity in the army by causing them to think that perhaps they ought to uh, 
you know, operate differently, you know, in future instances. I mean, if, if, if you're faced with that situation and you stand against the king because you know that what he's doing is wrong and then somebody else decides to step up and do what you refuse to, um, then it, it, it creates uh, a sense of uncertainty and insecurity and then, you know, people in inevitably start thinking about what's good for themselves. And we talked about all of this just in the context of, of really looking at what it means for a nation to be discipled by a leader uh, that, that has an orphan spirit. Um, you know, we, we looked at basically how this bred mistrust, suspicion, fear, division, you know, political spirit, uh, insecurity, um, you know, just a lack of integrity. Because people are encouraged to respond situationally rather than toe a line that, that, is, that is consistent with, you know, the Lord. You know, once these things have taken root in the, in the fabric and the institutions of a nation, it becomes increasingly difficult for, uh, you know, the, 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 the citizens, the stakeholders of that nation to come together and, and, and you know, work as one uh, to establish the purposes of God. You know, their hearts have been troubled. I mean, this went all the way down to the ordinary citizens because, you know, they were looking for uh, refuge from Saul. You know, when David was looking for refuge from Saul, you know, he, he ran to a town and he knew and they knew that destruction was upon them um, if David remained there. So from, from the king's court all the way to the common man, this spirit of orphanhood um, that, that Saul was operating in had permeated the nation. And I think it's really important that we identify that. And, 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 you know, when we look at, I guess, starting with our own nation and look at the other nations of the earth um, and, and examine them uh, in this context so that we're not so perturbed by the things that we see. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we find ourselves wondering when things are going to change. But as long as uh, orphan leadership remains and is perpetuated, it's very difficult for anything to change. Because this is the font, this is the, this is the, 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 the plumb line, this is the thrust uh, of such leadership. And it can only um, you know, continue to deteriorate until there's an implosion, unless, unless new leadership emerges. And of course the Lord knows this, which is why you know, way back in 1 Samuel 13, he, he tells, he first of all says that you know, Saul's kingdom will not endure. And then um, in 1 Samuel 15, two chapters later, when Saul fails to, 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 to eliminate the Amalekites, um, you know, the Lord takes a very definite position. But, you know, this spirit, this attitude of heart and mind and courage, uh, you know, really was over the nation of Israel for 40 years. So imagine 40 years of this kind of rule. And, you know, thinking about it, again, in the context of this nation, um, we talk about it in terms of, you know, post-independence, for example, and the fact that, um, you know, Nigeria is 62 years old. Uh, and, you know, we, we wonder why we're not, you know, further down the line or wonder why things are not different. But 
actually, if we've had a series of um, leaders that exhibit many of these characteristics that we see Saul uh, walking in, it's, it's not um, a surprise that we find ourselves where we are. And I think it's a good thing to, to deconstruct things in this way because I, I believe it gives us hope. You know, we don't need to feel... Uh, alarmed or overwhelmed by the things that we experience. It, it, it's, it's a clear diagnostic that the Lord is giving us. If you have this type of leadership, that this is the kind of nation that you will have. And if you want uh, a, a different kind of nation, then you must have a different kind of leadership. And, and, and to begin to understand, you know, the characteristics, uh, you know, of those, um, of, of such a leader. You know, when, when the Lord was was renouncing Saul, um, he, he basically said that uh, he would remove him and he would, he would you know, replace him with someone who was after his own heart. Um, I'm actually reading from Acts 13, though it's in, 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 in 1 Samuel 13, but it, it, it's also referred to in Acts 13, 20 to 23, I mean 21 to 23. Um, and it reads, the people craved for a king, so God gave them one from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, the son of Kish, who ruled for 40 years. For those of you who, who doubted that, he, he ruled for 40 years. After removing him, God raised up David to be king. For God said of him, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man who, who always pursues my heart and will accomplish all that I have destined him to do. From David's lineage, God brought Israel a saviour, just as he promised. I'll just read um, that again. After removing him, God raised up David to be king. For he said of him, for God said of him, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man who always pursues my heart, always pursues my heart, and will accomplish all that I have destined him to do. From David's lineage, God brought Israel a saviour, just as he had promised, and that's in the Passion Translation. So, um, the, the model of leadership that, that the Lord is in support of and encouraging um, is one where such a leader always pursues his heart and will accomplish all that the Lord has destined him to do. The sonship model of leadership could be distilled in the simplest terms down to one who loves the Lord, one will obey him and place him first. Everything else, you know, flows from there. So such a leader, their identity, their sense of purpose must be drawn in reference to the Lord. So this is what the Lord is looking for. He's not looking for perfection. We all know that David was not perfect by any means. But he's always seeking the heart of God and, and, and to do his will. And if Israel must have a king, this is the kind of king that, that the Lord wants for them. If a nation uh, uh, is, is going to be led by um, the people of God, we must cultivate this heart in order to be the right seed um, uh, uh, in, in the model nation that he's building to be able to disciple the nations of the earth. 
So let's take a, a, a closer look at, at David and his operations as king. And David bursts onto the scene in 1 Samuel 17, as we know. Of course, yes, he's anointed in, in chapter 16, but chapter 17 is where he, he really emerges. And, you know, when he, he, I mean, he's bearing in mind he's been anointed king, but he's still tending sheep and still running errands for his father. So his father sends him to the battlefront um, and, you know, he, he sees the situation unfolding with, with Goliath and the Philistine army intimidating Israel. And, you know, his confidence in that situation comes from the fact that he, uh, he knows that to kill Goliath and defend Israel is completely aligned with the purposes of God. You know, he just like, you know, when he was tending sheep um, in obedience to his father's instructions, you know, he puts his heart and soul into it. And he has that confidence that, um, that he has the necessary support. And so even though he comes to the battlefront without military experience or armor, um, he has the right head and heart uh, to, take on, to take on the, um, you know, the purposes of God. Uh, you know, and as his life unfolds, we see that you know, he, he simply uses the things that the Lord has given him um, <clears throat> in service of the Lord and the, and the Lord's purposes. And this, this you know, causes... Saul's hatred and resentment of him to rise. It's like, you know, David is just being himself. He's just being himself. He's not trying to provoke Saul or anybody else for that matter, not even his brothers. But as that um, identity and expression uh, of, of a man who is after God's own heart and who draws his confidence from the Lord unfolds, it, it provokes... Uh, resentment and, and, and bitterness and, and, and anger and envy um, from those who are positioned uh, uh, from that orphan identity model. You know, 1 Samuel 18, 28 to 30 in the New Living says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. So David is just doing what is required. He's doing what he's asked to do. He's, he's, he's pursuing the purposes of God. And Saul just gets angrier and angrier and he becomes more and more hate-filled uh, you know, concerning David. And there's really nothing that David can do about that. You know, it's, it's, I think it's important for us to, to note that, um, you know, as the Lord is, is, is working on us as a people, you know, his people, and this model nation is emerging, people don't necessarily need a, a, a reason or a good reason to, to resist or to resent. You know, those who recognize the salvation of the Lord will align, and those that um, still desire to, you know, take positions that they have taken for, for a long time and feel that they are better versed in how to navigate those positions will oppose the purposes of God. So I think it's very important for us to, to, to recognize that, um, you know, the spirit controls the natural. And there's some things that manifest in the spirit that the reasons of which cannot be discerned naturally. 
you know, there's opposition simply because of positions taken. Saul opposed David, not really because of who David was personally, but just all that David represented. David drew his strength and his identity from a different place, and that, in it, that, that place was a place of inherent strength. And it, it exposed uh, the relative weakness of, of Saul's position just by him being himself. You know, at the end of the day, Saul was there with the whole armies of Israel and they had no answer uh, for Goliath. Along comes this teenage boy uh, with no armor and no military experience, but he has something going on on the inside that gives him the courage of conviction to, to, to stand up um, and, <clears throat> and do the, the will of the Lord. You know, David places the will of the Lord and the good of the nation first. And this is a constant theme during his reign. And that's completely the opposite to Saul's position. You know, Saul places himself, his personal ambitions, his self-image, and his personal priorities ahead of the, uh, the purposes of God. You know, we see after the, the, the priests have been slaughtered um, and 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 David, you know, had run to Kayla. And then Abiathar uh, uh, is the only one that escapes and comes to him and tells him what's happened. And David, you know, really regrets involving them. You know, remember, when, when David gets to Ahimelech, he doesn't say, um, I'm on the run from Saul. He says, he says Saul <coughs> sent me on an errand. Uh, and he sort of, you know, minimizes the whole thing. Um, and just tries to get what he needs and move on. But, you know, when, when the situation unfolds as, as, as it does, um, you know, David, David regrets what has happened to the priests and he changes tack. He doesn't want to expose the people of Keilah to the same fate. And so he retreats with these 400 men, uh, you know, to the cave so as not to put um, any of the, the, the children of Israel, the, the, think of it as the general populace, at risk. So, you know, David has retreated to, to the caves of Adullam. Um, and, you know, the, the, the game of cat and mouse continues. And, you know, Saul is the king. Um, he's on the move with, with his army in pursuit of David. And, you know, it's amazing how the Lord works and how he, um, he, how he tests David gives opportunity for David's heart and, and, and his motives to be tested. Because uh, in, in 1 Samuel 24, um, you know, David, uh, Saul enters a cave to, to, to relieve himself, to go to the loo. And of course, I mean, even just that whole process of going to the loo is a very, um, you know, your guard is down. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a place where you're sort of somewhat at ease. Um, and verse 3 says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Verse 4 says, Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Now imagine this situation. David, who hasn't done anything wrong, he has served Saul well. Um, you know, yes, he's made one or two sort of 
decisions that have that have caused harm. It's not that the, the, the death of the priests uh, is a small thing, but I mean, Saul was bloodthirsty. So I mean, he was looking for for anybody to 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 vent his his anger on. But the the thing is that he's in this situation, um, and his men say to him, now is your opportunity. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So he has, he has those around him encouraging him that this is your opportunity to take Saul out. And I mean, imagine if we were in, in David's position. We have been crowned, we've been anointed rather, king already. So it's not as if we don't know where the Lord is going. We don't know how the road is going to unfold, but he's already made it clear that he desires to make David king. Um, Saul is, is persecuting him to kill him for no good reason. And David finds himself in a situation where he has an opportunity and then he has a, a chorus of people telling him that this is God giving him the opportunity to, um, to, to how does he put it, uh, put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So, but so David cuts the hem of his, his robe, and then his conscience starts bother, bothering him, um, and you know he 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 remembers the nation of Israel and 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 the purposes of God. I mean, imagine how it would be if, um, you know, this is Israel's first king, and Israel's first king gets killed, um, not by an enemy but by a fellow son of Israel. Uh, it, would, it would just seem as though in his ambition for the throne, he murdered the person sitting on it. Imagine the precedent that that would set you know, in the nation of Israel. But David chooses to take a different position. He decides that, okay, I was minding my own business, tending sheep. The Lord calls me and anoints me king. Um, and so therefore... It cannot be down to me to get myself on the throne. You know, the Lord knew that Saul was on the throne when, he, when he, he sent Samuel to anoint me. So he must have a plan of how that throne is going to be vacated and I'm going to be crowned. Um, so, uh, so verse 7 says, So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. I mean, this is, this is a type of leadership. You know, this is his. It belongs to him. The Lord has said it. But he submits first to the purposes, the timings, and the outworkings of the Lord, rather than to the urges of his flesh and the pressure of circumstance. And he stands down. After all, David, uh, Saul is, is God's anointed. Um, and so, you know, then they have, you know, a bit of, a, of a, an encounter and he's, he sort of speaks to Saul after there's, there's a sort of safe distance between them. And he tells him that, you know, basically, why are, you, why are you trying to kill me? I could have killed you today and I did not. You know, what more do I have to do to, to persuade you that I don't mean you any ill? And of course, in the moment, um, you know, Saul sort of says, he calms down. Oh, yes, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Kind of, kind of response. But the interesting thing is that it's such a temporary relief because that orphan heart can only be healed. It can't be reasoned with. No matter how much discussion and debate you have with one who is in that position of, of uh, an orphan heart and an orphan sense of identity, 
You can't reason him out of that position. He needs an encounter that brings him and, and any one of us that are battling with these feelings of, of, of you know, imposter syndrome or inadequacy or insecurity. It's an encounter with the Lord that brings us into a fresh revelation of who we are uh, and who he is that will heal that heart position, not um, data points, not look, you know, I could have killed you and I didn't. Look, you know, I've demonstrated once again that I do not mean you any ill. It doesn't heal the orphan heart. But in order for that healing to come, of course, Saul would need to come to the Lord in humility. He would have to acknowledge that he is sick. He would have to recognize that indeed um, there is something wrong with my heart and I need to, I need to go to the Lord and, 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 and lay myself before him uh, in humility. But if he's not willing to do that, then he will always remain a threat to David no matter what David does for him. The second time was in, in was two chapters later in 1 Samuel 26. Uh, and again, you know, David looks to the Lord. He doesn't um, operate, you know, from, from circumstance. Let's just take a quick look. You know, Saul is with 3,000 of Israel's elite troops, it says in verse 2, and went to hunt down David in the wilderness of Ziph. Um, Saul camped around the, the road alongside the hill of Hakila near Jeshimon, where David was hiding. Um, and when David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies to verify the report of Saul's arrival. So, you know, they're, they're sort of scoping one another out. Uh, David um, goes to the camp um, and... and he, you know, he asks who will come with him, and, and Abishai says, I will go with you. So, so in verse 7, it says, So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep, with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. Um, I think I'm, I'm reading in the New Living. There's another translation. I think the Amplified or the, the LITV that, that sort of talks about how the Lord had put them into a stupor, a deep sleep. So, so if the Lord has put them into a deep sleep, it, it sort of implies that this whole situation is kind of set up, again, giving David another opportunity to, to respond. Um, so his men again say to him in verse 8, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time. Abishai whispered to David, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. Verse 9, no, David said, don't kill him. For, he, for who can remain innocent after attack, attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed, but take the spear and, and the jug that jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. I mean, imagine, you know, we're seeing um, more and more of what's, what's, what's happening on the inside of David. He has another opportunity. Saul has completely abandoned, um, you know, 
any kind of charting any course that the Lord has set. And he's diverted his energy and his resources and his attention and his focus towards pursuing David. Um, and, and David has another opportunity where he, he's in the midst of Saul and his men, uh, where Saul is in a place of vulnerability. Um, and yet he shows restraint. You know, he, he, he doesn't feel that who the Lord has said he is and what the Lord has spoken over him is something that he needs to grasp at in order for him to be affirmed on the inside. You know, that characteristic is like the Lord. You know, we're, we're told in, in, in um, uh, Philippians 2 that, um, you know, the Lord did not grasp at his position. He didn't feel it was something to be clutched at, but he laid it aside uh, to fulfill the purposes of the Father. David did not feel that the kingship was something he had to grasp at, but he was ready to, to be still on the inside and wait for the Lord at his appointed time to fulfill his word of, of promise over him. Um, but, you know, again, once they've taken the, the spear and the, and, the, and the jug of water and, uh, you know, they sort of move away to a, to a safe distance, again, David calls out. Um, and, you know, he accuses Saul's men for guarding the king poorly uh, because he was able to penetrate their camp. Um, and, of course, Saul recognizes David's voice and asks him, is that you, David? Uh, and David replies in verse 17, yes, my Lord, the king, why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? But now let, the, let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme, then may those involved be cursed by the Lord, for they have driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people, and they have said, go worship pagan gods. Must I die on foreign soil, far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come out to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge on the mountains? And, you know, again, David is trying to reason with that orphan heart. And in the moment, Saul comes down and he says, you know, come back home, I will no longer harm you, and so on. But, you know, it's interesting that you have a king on the throne with a whole kingdom and a whole army behind him. And it is David who is running around the wilderness and running around caves with 600 men. And those men are described um, as, you know, all sorts of societal rejects that are assembled together um, and, and, and sort of discipled by David. So it's not as if, you know, he has people that have been groomed from their youth to serve uh, uh, in the king's army or, or, or have been trained in, in any kind of warfare. So David, naturally speaking, is in a vastly disadvantaged position versus Saul. But yet it's David that's giving the assurances. I mean, under normal circumstances, it ought to be Saul uh, that, that is reassuring David. But David, without an army without a kingdom, without anything, is having to offer assurances, um, you know, to Saul that he doesn't want to kill him. And, and I think that's such a powerful 
reality to grasp because what it's basically illustrating to us is that no matter what you have on the in, inside, it's your inner state that prevails. There is no reason whatsoever for um, David to be a threat to Saul other than the fact that on the inside, his state is vastly superior to Saul's and Saul knows it. And you know, for those of us living here and now, it's something that I believe we need to embrace and recognize because, um, you know, the Lord will place us in situations where we seemingly have no apparatus or no machinery or we look to be in the vastly weaker position. But in reality, the strength of your inner man is actually, uh, you know, what carries the day, not all of the apparatus that you have um, externally. The superior, your, the superior inner state has the upper hand, no matter what things look like ex externally. So when we find ourselves in situations day to day, we must remember this so that we're not intimidated by, um, by that which is demonstrated by, by men. You know, from the time that Saul was uh, anointed king, beyond the initial periods of, of prophecy and so on, we never see him, uh, you know, turning to the Lord um, to inquire and to wait. So at no point in Saul's journey beyond, um, you know, the initial instructions from Samuel do we see him systematically uh, turn to the Lord. You know, when, when Samuel comes to Saul, he says to him that, uh, you know, this is what the Lord intends and the Lord... Um, and, and Saul's response in um, 1 Samuel 9, 21, says, Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. My family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? So this is when, you know, Saul, Samuel is telling him that, that you know, the Lord wants, is calling him to be king. So he starts off from that place of, you know, who am I? Why me? Why are you saying this to me? I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. Um, but by chapter 15, he has completely lost sight of this position. Um, and he has basically uh, turned his attention to the things that are around him as king and external to him. You know, David... Um, you know, also has this position and we see it at different points when, for example, uh, you know, Saul says that he should be his son-in-law and he feels that, you know, he's too lowly for that and, and so on. But the difference is that David maintains this position throughout his, uh, throughout his time as king. You know, he recognises that, you know, he is where he is because of the favour of the Lord and not uh, because of, you know, any sort of inherent, um, anything inherent uh, about, about him or his family or any sense of entitlement. And we see repeatedly that he goes back to the Lord uh, to inquire of the Lord. Um, you know, when, when he, he runs from Saul at Cala in 1 Samuel 23, he goes to him and asks him, you know, you know what course of action he should take. 
whether he should attack uh, 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 and just what he should do and the Lord responds to him. And so, you know, David is in a situation of pressure, far greater pressure um, than, well, maybe not far greater, because you could say that, you know, Saul too was facing attack by, uh, by a, a foreign army. But, but what he does, he looks at the faces of the people and he, he does what he should not do. He makes the sacrifice, doesn't wait for Samuel. But, but David, time and time and time again in the face of pressure, he recognizes that the Lord is the one who has put me in this position and I will uh, turn my attentions to the Lord to know what to do in this position. Uh, in, in 1 Samuel 30, uh, when, when he comes back to his base and he sees that the Amalekites have attacked and they've taken the, 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 um, the spoils and taken their, their wives and children and, and his men are, are raging and want to stone him. You know, he's under a great deal of pressure. But he turns to the Lord and says, you know, Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? You know, he goes to the Lord repeatedly to ask him about how he should fight the Philistines. You know, he doesn't say, oh, it's the Philistines. I know how they are. I've beaten them once. I can beat them again. Every single time he goes and he asks the Lord. And, you know, that constant um, referencing base, constant recognition that I am here uh, executing the purposes of the Lord. So I had better ask the one who put me on the throne how I need to, or who's given me this position and given me this mandate, how I need to go about it, irrespective of how much external pressure he's under, even though his men wanted to stone him, even though, you know, uh, Saul was kind of hot on his heels. He asked the Lord what he should do. Um, in 2 Samuel 5, 17 to 25, David had been crowned king over all Israel. You know, he had been crowned over Judah initially in the immediate aftermath of Saul's death and then, uh, and then subsequently over the remaining tribes of Israel. So he could look at this as a rival point. But even at that point, he still asked the Lord, what he should do and how he should go about prosecuting his battle. And, you know, this is indicative of the fact that he doesn't lose his sense of um, who he is in the context of the trappings and the external fixtures of his life. You know, for many of us, the Lord will, will lead us into places um, that are, are beyond, you know, where anyone in our natural heritage have been. He will lead us into places that are beyond our own expectations. And if this sense of identity is not settled on the inside of us, then we'll be tempted to reach for things external, we'll be afraid of the faces of men. We'll forget that it is the Lord who is leading us, it's the Lord who has given us the assignment and set us on the path. You know, David is always thinking about the Lord and what he wants and what is good you know, for the nation of Israel. You know, when Saul meets his end at the hands of the same Philistines, David does not rejoice. In fact, when somebody brings him um, Saul's crown uh, and he brings it to him, um, telling him that, you know, basically he saw Saul who, who, who was on death's door and he killed him and took the crown. 
because he could see that he wasn't going to make it. You know, he said that to David, um, expecting that it would be received as uh, a demonstration of loyalty and alignment. You know, imagine if, if such a message had been delivered to Saul. It would have given, it would have resulted in great favor, probably. It would have, it would have uh, resulted in being positioned uh, uh, with, with, with reward and, and, and honor in the king's court. But because David is thinking about Israel and he's thinking about the purposes of God, it's like a, it's, um, it, you know, it, it, just the, the, the notion that an Amalekite should come to, to him and, and, and basically brag to him that he killed the Lord's anointed and considers it something that will be celebrated is something that, that repulses David. And, and him being crowned the king of, of Israel, uh, Judah and Israel, uh, is, is, is subordinated to the, the idea that the enemies of Israel would rejoice over uh, uh, the felling of one of their kings. We see in, in, in the beginnings of, of 2 Samuel in chapter, chapter 2, 1 and 1, um, where David mourns over, his, uh, over Saul and, and, and Jonathan. And you, know, you, would, you would not, just from reading those, those verses, believe that this was somebody that had been trying to kill David uh, for, for years. But he, he takes a step back and he situates everything in the context of the purposes of God and the calling of God and the honor that God has placed uh, on, on being king over Israel. And he mourns from that position. And, you know, imagine the armies of Israel seeing this, the kind of healing that it will bring to uh, the nation, to see the king that Saul had been pursuing for all of these years. Uh, and, and Saul declines and he dies a very gruesome and, and undignified death. And yet David does not celebrate. He mourns. He, uh, he, honors, uh, he honors Saul's office and he honors the throne that the Lord gave to him. And he honors the Lord who put him there by, by celebrating. And, you know, this is is like a, a, almost like a prophetic stance that brings healing, that transmits something else other than that which um, Saul had been transmitting during the course of his, of his reign over Israel. So he said that um, you know, when, when you know, Samuel initially went to Saul and told him that the Lord wanted to make him king, he was very humbled and, um, you know, really didn't understand why the Lord would choose him. Uh, but it's a, a relatively short period of time later that he has totally sort of lost sight of all of that. You know, by contrast, David, um, you know, after he's gone through this whole process of, of running from Saul and, and, and so on, and then he's been crowned king of both Judah and Israel, and he... Uh, you know, he's, he's winning battles, um, and, you know, his kingdom is really being established. Um, and then he, he, he says that, you know, it's not good that, uh, you know, he is living in a cedar house and the, and the, and the presence of the Lord is, is in a tent. And he talks about wanting to build a house for the Lord. 
And then, of course, initially Nathan says to him that, you know, he should do whatever is in his heart, that the Lord is with him. Um, and then and then, and then, then Nathan comes back and says, actually, you know, no, uh, he's not to build him a house. But, you know, then he, he, in that same sort of conversation, makes the promise to him that he will always have somebody, you know, on his throne, uh, someone from his lineage on the throne. And, you know... The way that David responds to that, you know, he's, he's, he's already been crowned king um, of, of the whole nation. He's already enjoying uh, the, 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 the trappings of being king and the, and the, 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 the kingdom is, is, is being established. But when the Lord tells him that he's going to, you know, keep uh, one on his throne uh, eternally, um, 2 Samuel 7, from verse 18. Uh, you know, David is so overwhelmed and, and he reiterates again. So he's reinforcing the position that he's always held. That, Lord, who am I? You have honored me in this way. And he says in verse 18, uh, it says, then, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant, how great you are. And he goes on, you know, what other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people. Uh, you know, and he really just um, pours out his heart. He pours out his heart to the Lord uh, in, in gratitude and, and, and honor. Um, you know, this is after, um, you know, he's been crowned. In, verse, in, in chapter six, he has the experience where they're moving the ark and the ark... Uh, you know, the cattle lose their footing and Uzzah reaches his hand out to stay steady it and and um, is killed and he's upset about that. And then, you know, they bring the ark back from, from, from the house of Obed-Edom and, and you know, he, he, he says that he wants to build a temple for the Lord and the Lord gives him these promises. So I'm saying that to say that he, is, he has gone through a great deal in terms of negotiating the promises of the law, but this is still his heart position uh, before God. He's still in awe of the, the honor that the Lord has given to him because he has a, 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 a correct perspective of God and of himself. And so he remains in an attitude of humility no matter what it is that the Lord adds to him. Second Samuel 8 uh, verse 15 says, So David reigned over all Israel and continue to administer justice and righteousness for all his people. In, in, in the LITV it says, and David reigned over all Israel and David executed justice and righteousness to all his people. Now we know that um, Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 tell us about a child being born uh, and a son being given, 
and the government being on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then, and then verse 7 says, There shall be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. He shall rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So David was exhibiting uh, uh, leadership and rulership that was just and righteous. He continued to administer justice and righteousness for all his people. His, 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 his kingdom and his kingship was characterized by righteousness and justice, even though David himself was not perfect. But because his heart was uh, right before God, uh, the Lord was able to, to minister to the people of Israel through the rulership of David. The rulership of uh, the, the, the government of sons, the leadership of sons that causes the people to rejoice, that causes one's enemies to be subdued, is the one that is aligned with the eternal throne of God, that's aligned with the characteristics of the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In all of this, because of David's imperfections, he comes to a state, place where he, um, you know, he suffers a, a coup and his very own son that was born from his loins uh, seeks to overthrow him. And David has been on the throne many years at this point. And he comes to the place where he has to flee from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of protocols are being put in place and things are being done and they're sort of trying to bundle him to safety. Um, and and uh, the priest wants to take the ark of God's presence with him, with David as he's going. And David says, it says in, in 2, 15, 2 Samuel 15, 25 and 26, then the king told Zadok, the ark, take the ark of God back to its rightful place. I'm reading the Amplified. Take the ark of God back to its rightful place in the city of Jerusalem, the capital. If I find favor in the Lord's side, he will bring me back again and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he should say, I have no delight in you, then, then here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So in the midst of all of this, after many years on the throne, after many victories, after, uh, you know, the Lord, um, you know, after him sinning greatly and the Lord forgiving him and, 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 and reassuring him and reaffirming the covenant that he will, he will still keep a descendant of David on, on the throne. Um, you know, he has this situation where his position is threatened, actually threatened, there's actually a coup, not an imaginary threat, not uh, a case of him feeling insecure, but an actual coup. And David doesn't struggle. He just says, you know what? If the Lord still finds favor with me, then he will bring me back to the place that you know, he set me on. And if he doesn't, he will do with me what he sees fit even in this time of crisis, even when he has 
a whole track record of success as a king, even when it's his own son that is trying to overthrow him, he still turns to the Lord. And he, 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 he affirms to, to, to those in his kingdom and those in his court that what the Lord desires is the most important thing. If the Lord desires for him to continue as king, then the Lord will make it so. And if he does not, then he will do with him whatever he sees fit. His identity, sense of value, purpose, uh, was really in his relationship and his fellowship with the Lord. His identity was drawn from the Lord. His sense of purpose was drawn from the Lord. And he had no identity or purpose outside of that. And he was not willing to reach for anything to add to himself, uh, to compensate for any, for any threat that he was experiencing. You know, these reveal starkly uh, opposed um, uh, operations as king. And, and, and it's not by accident that David's tenure, David's time on the throne, um, became the, the, the sort of benchmark for subsequent kings of Israel. We know that Josiah, many, many years later, uh, looked back and, uh, to, to the time of David, and the throne of David was, was the standard. And yet David held on to it loosely. He fought the enemies of God with zeal, but he never fought against the purposes of God in his bid uh, to establish himself or to, to add to himself something that he that, that, that was considered to, to, to give him greater stature. You know, in this time that we live in, where as the Lord is, is, is cultivating this model nation that is the church, the Lord desires to add many things to us, but, but they're for his purposes and not for our aggrandizement. There are things that he needs to kill on the inside of us so that we do not reach for just as Christ did not feel it necessary to grasp uh, his position, but laid it down for the purposes of the Father and in obedience to the Father, the Lord will bring us to places where uh, he will, he will uh, extinguish certain appetites and desires and, 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 and tendencies and lusts on the inside of us so that we can uh, uh, steward his purposes without being overtaken, without giving landing strip to the enemy, without... Um, without our hearts becoming contaminated such that the kingdom uh, and, and the righteousness and justice of his rule cannot be found there. It is when he uh, assembles and, and, and grows up a nation of sons that have this attitude of heart that uh, the model nation will be um, strengthened and be in a position to disciple the nations uh, of the earth. You know, I, I, I've said many a time that there's only one hero uh, in the story, and his name is Jesus. And as long as we are struggling with Christ, struggling for airtime, for showtime with him, we'll find ourselves, we'll always find ourselves outside of, of the, the perfect uh, will and purposes of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for all that you're doing and all you're teaching and showing us at this time. We thank you, Lord, that you know even as you 
uh, are bringing our attention to, to certain things, Lord, that as we go in our, in our private time with you and, and sit before you, that you will shine your light of truth into our hearts and meet us where we truly are, beyond uh, the, 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 the things that we, that we may place externally, the things that we may, the window dressing that we may put in place, oh God, but, but, but by your spirit and your word of truth, oh God, penetrate to the true state of our hearts. Help us, oh God, to just yield to you in a place of absolute safety and surrender so that your purposes can be fulfilled, O oh God. Cause us to be hungry and thirsty for the establishment of your will. Cause us, Father, to be energized. Even as Christ said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Let that be our engine and our, our motivator, O oh God. For the nations of the earth truly need to be discipled. And for that to happen, it's essential uh, that the model nation emerges. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, next week we'll be looking at uh, the, the journey of repentance in, in the heart because it's not a case of I'm Saul or I'm David. The Lord has made a way for all of us to journey in him to a place where our hearts are open and responsive to him. So we'll be looking at... Um, repentance uh, next week. Thank you for joining us.